From the boardroom to you, Voice America Business Network. American Bonanza Gold's Copperstone Project, located in Arizona, is on track for a fourth quarter 2011 mine and startup process with the goal of achieving full production by the end of the year 2011. American Bonanza is fully funded and permitted with no debit or hedge. The company has a clear strategy to create a highly profitable, mid-tier gold-producing company beginning in fourth quarter 2011. Join the current gold bull market. Be a part of a new gold producer in 2011. American Bonanza Gold Corp. Visit the website at American bonanza.com for more exciting information don't miss this great opportunity attention gold stock investors brazil resources inc trading as brizf on the otcqx and as bri on the tsx venture is exploring three gold projects in the garupi gold belt in brazil surrounded by expanding gold mines and deposits bri features top brazilian geologists earlier involved in discovering 10 million ounces of gold directly in brazil led by recognized mining and financing executive amir adnani co-founder and chairman look us up now at www.brazilresources.com that's brazil resources or call us at 1-855-630-1001. That's 1-855-630-1001. Capitalizing on North America's gold assets, Marathon Gold Corp. MOZ on the TSX is building value through resource development in Newfoundland and Idaho. Q1 2012 is expected to be a rewarding time for Marathon, with an update resource estimate expected on its economic leprechaun gold deposit in Newfoundland, and an initial resource estimate is expected at the same time on its Golden Chest project in Idaho, a historical producer. Don't miss this opportunity to capitalize on today's gold price. For more info, visit www.marathon-gold.com. Meadow Bay Gold is a gold exploration, pre-production, and development company focused on developing its flagship project, the Atlanta Gold Mine in Nevada. Meadow Bay Gold has recently announced a significant gold porphyry discovery at the Atlanta Mine and is currently conducting a significant drill program. Meadow Bay Gold trades under the symbol MAYGF on the OTCQX or MAY on the TSX Venture Exchange. To learn more about Meadow Bay Gold, go to www.meadowbaygold.com. Gold in Nevada. The right stuff in the right place. Paramount Gold and Silver is a U.S.-based exploration company with multi-million ounce gold and silver deposits. Paramount's primary asset, the Sleeper Gold Project in northern Nevada, is located in one of the world's most prolific mining districts. Paramount's gold equivalent resources stand at over 7 million ounces. Paramount trades on the NYSE under the symbol PZG. For more information, go to www.paramountgold.com. Paramount Gold is located for success in gold and silver exploration. All financial advice provided on this show is for entertainment and educational purposes only. The financial ideas and strategies discussed are only provided as a starting point for a conversation about money matters. With regard to your particular investments and financial strategies, consult your financial planner, CPA, or investment professional. All your financial decisions are yours and yours alone to make and subsequently are solely your responsibility. The information that is supplied through the context of the radio program and any repurposing of its content by the host or network is a combination and collection of solid financial investment understanding, opinion, and comments. This network show and its hosts are not liable for financial strategies, outcomes that you employ in any manner that result in any kind of loss. Shares of corporate sponsors may be the subject of buy or sell recommendations in Jay Taylor's newsletter in accordance with Jay's objective opinion. I'll be sliding down, I'll be gliding down. Try not to try too hard, it's just a love 
Welcome to Turning Hard Times into Good Times with your host, Jay Taylor. This hour will help investors fix issues and achieve personal gain. Now, here's your host, Jay Taylor. Welcome back to Turning Hard Times into Good Times. I am your host, Jay Taylor. Uh, this is the second hour of today's show, and I've got Jack Crooks with me. But before we pick up on where we left off last hour, I do have to thank our sponsors for making the show economically viable. For the second hour of today's show, our sponsors are American Bonanza, Lucky Strike Resources, Helio Resources, Marathon Gold, Meadow Bay Gold, Metanor Resources, Merrick's Gold, Brazil Resources, American Bonanza, and Paramount Gold and Silver Corp. Well, Jack, when we uh, one of the things you said in the last hour that really uh, struck me was, you know, we have the benefit now of hindsight. You know, with the benefit of hindsight, we can go back and look at major turning points. Well, that's all nice from an academic point of view, and I guess to the extent that you can you can learn from history, it's important to do that. But what makes you think now that the odds favor the uh, a bottoming out of the dollar and a turn to uh, to a new bull market in the dollar. Well, I guess that's our call on, on what's going to happen in the global economy. And what I mean by our call is we we don't see demand returning in the global economy uh, anytime soon. Um, whether eurozone's in trouble and they could go into a very very nasty and deep uh, recession, uh, the U.S. consumer is still just sucking wind um, and continues to go into a shell and save more. And the the third thing is is China. Um, China itself could very easily slip into a crisis, but even if they don't, they could have a major growth surprise to the downside and mm-hmm. say it doesn't turn into some type of crisis. Um, that in and of itself, I think, would be deflationary because I think that would hurt real assets in general. So you'd have a process in which you have the the world's major consumer going into a shell. You you have the eurozone going into a very deep recession. Um, so those two sources of demand are gone, um, and you could have China not providing the demand for the emerging market economies. We're already starting to see hot money flow out of China um, and out of the emerging markets to a, to a degree. But this would intensify it. And again, these are large pools of capital that would they sure wouldn't go into the eurozone. They would have to again come into the U. So I see this money flow argument based mm-hmm. on the, the demand not being in the global economy um, in a very, very powerful way. And what's interesting, a lot of people say that you know China right now is about to take over the world, become the new world reserve currency. Um, it doesn't happen that fast, number one. Um, but number two, the, the, what has benefited China so much in the upswing when we had free credit is this type of thing that's got them in a box that's going to hurt them badly. And all the surplus countries tend to be hurt in a deflationary, i.e., lack of demand global economy like we're seeing. Mm -hmm. Let me just explain that a little bit more. The U.S., um, although its consumer is going into a shell a bit, has has demand, has consumer demand. So U.S. companies can sell domestically, and, and there's some demand there. The export model countries, primarily China, just does not have the domestic demand to support the amount of supply that they're pumping out of their factories. So in an environment of massive um, uh, of decline and deflation and debt write-off, the U.S. actually wins from an economic standpoint and a money flow standpoint. So we think you know, that's the, the powerful factor. The reality is, though, uh, you need more than just uh, a, a global conflagration, a scare event to maintain uh, the U.S. dollar in a multi-year bull market. It can't be just a one-off mm-hmm. um, and then it just zooms. 
Um, but we are starting to see, too, some manufacturing money coming back into the U.S. Um, there's a very good article recently, uh, wasn't recent, it was a few months ago, in The Economist. Boston Consulting Group now is telling their major manufacturers in the U.S. that it probably doesn't make sense anymore uh, to manufacture in China. Hmm. Uh, maybe up until 2014, 2015, maybe. But they're, they're consulting and telling their clients stay home uh, mm -hmm. because of the cost factor, the transportation factor. That edge just isn't there anymore. Hmm. Um, and, um, you, you know, just from a relative standpoint, the fact that the U.S. dollar is so low, uh, that makes U.S. assets very, very cheap. And that's what the, uh, a currency does. It does play that role of kind of cleansing the system. It overshoots and undershoots, and the fact that it undershoots means that U.S. assets if there is some policy change, and again, it has to come, something decent has to come from Washington in this process, um, but if there is something, the U.S. assets look very, very cheap to international investors when you consider uh, where the dollar is and the potential, given what's going on in the global economy, uh, for money just to continue to just, again, slowly flow this way. So the, mm -hmm. the, that's the basic argument. Yeah. So, Jack, you're, you're quite bearish on the euro. For obvious reasons, I think it's hard not to Correct. be these days. Uh, on the other hand, though, the news that uh, there's been a concerted effort now on the part of the central banks around the world to socialize this problem once again with the United States and other central banks uh, throwing money at the problem. Uh, do you think? What do you think the impact of this will be? I think it'll just be another minor blip. Um, you know, maybe a week or two. Um, and if you, if you go back and look at the, the massive quantitative eating program, programs that the Fed has done as kind of a guideline, and um, they, the, as the more money they spend, it gets less and less stimulative. Mm -hmm. And you can you can see that in the way the consumers have reacted to the first one. They reacted uh, more positively in the second one, less positively. And mm -hmm. I think we're in the process potentially of a third one, and I think uh, it's going to have very, very little impact. We've talked about the fact that they've created all this money, um, but it's not gotten into the real economy. And and I think um, Bernanke, Mr. Helicopter Bernanke, that always mm -hmm. believed that the Fed could create inflation uh, in the economy through its monetary policy now has to be very, very worried. Um, he kind of poo-pooed. Uh, the Bank of Japan and said they didn't do enough, otherwise they they wouldn't have been in the type of deflation, 20-year inflation, deflation and variancy markets. So you have provided, um, you know, you, you've provided nine reasons why you think that the dollar may have bottomed. And I think when you say may have bottomed, the very fact that you're suggesting it may have means that you think the odds are in favor of that happening. Is that right? That's right. You know, you, I don't think you ever want to guarantee anything in financial markets, especially no. what we've seen lately, and that's why I, I like to use the word may or perhaps right. uh, most of the time. <laughs> right. But as I look at the chart, Jack, you know, we had that, um, you know, the blow off and the credit, well, the credit crunch and, uh, and you know, the risk trade uh, went off. That is, people got scared and they started to... Uh, sell stuff and speculate less and go back to paper back to back to money back to currency and back to gold we might mention also because in since 2008 and Lehman Brothers we've seen a major move into gold and to silver of course as well but um so it looks like you've got a, a nice base here you've it's sort of uh since Lehman Brothers you've come down I don't know the exact numbers but I just in looking at the chart here see you know a couple of uh, a couple of up, up trends uh, since we bottomed, um, you know, since the Lehman Brothers uh, failure. 
uh, and then an, a double bottom, perhaps, and looks like uh, you know, looks like a base has been built. Any anyway here, but but let's get into it. What are the nine reasons? I, I can look at uh, your paper. The first one you talked about is the credit crunch forces change. Uh, right, the credit right. crunch. Yeah, the credit crunch we just talked about. It's just, mm-hmm. I think you're going to see um, dollar credit come out of the global economy, and therefore the supply of dollars is is just is just going to fall. And based on you know supply and demand, that's um, going to tend to help push up the price of the dollar. Um, and then flight from risk. Um, right. We're yeah. Uh, the dollar um, gets in these risk bids. I.e., you talked about risk on, risk off. But the credit mm-hmm. crunch day, in fact, when it was it was March 2007. In fact, I was trading that day, and they came in and saved bear. It was the exact bottom in the U.S. dollar, um, and the dollar went on a a, a pretty big tear uh, in a in a risk bid, short term, of course. But we've seen we've seen these risk bids in the dollar again, and ultimately, I think this process, this long term process, a multi year, is 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 kind of the slow risk bid process, I guess you could say, and mm-hmm. not one of these sharper things, but the same type of uh, analogy. Mm-hmm. And then you talk about uh, growth in the United States. Well, we are having very tepid growth, if growth at all, and I have some questions about that even because I think if uh, if, if the inflation rate uh, were reported correctly, I don't know if you would agree with this or not, but if it were reported, if we used the same measure to, to record inflation as it did in the old days, would you think that the inflation rate would be higher now than, than what is reported? I do. Where do you stand? I do. You do. Okay. Yeah, I, I, I would tend to agree. I mean, anybody that actually goes to the supermarket themselves um, and then sees the headline inflation on some of these things and pays for their own gas has to shake yeah. their head. Right. So if that were the case, then real growth would be would be perhaps less uh, less strong than than the government says it is in the United States. But but I guess what you're getting at here is the notion of um, relative growth. So. Uh, it may be stronger or less weak in the U.S. than it is in other places, uh, Europe, U.K., and Japan, right? Exactly. Currencies are, are very much a relative game. We get focused on our own problems, which are very bad. But if you actually look at some of the other countries, and in, in the Eurozone is, is one example, much, much worse. Um, so currencies are very, very relative, and it's hard sometimes to get our head around that. Okay, so... So you've talked about the credit crunch forces change, flight from risk, and relative, relatively better growth in the U.S. Those are the first three reasons why you think the dollar could be entering a bull market. Another is the carry trade history. Talk to us, uh, tell our listeners first of all what you mean by the carry trade, and then explain what you mean here by the sure. carry trade history. Sure. The carry trade um, is often used when uh, an investor speculator um, wants to borrow a, a currency at very, very low rates and then turn around um, and reinvest that money into another currency that's paying higher yields or another asset class, uh, growth assets, for example. Um, and with the Fed um, having rates effectively at zero in the U.S. dollar, um, it, it is a very enticing carry trade, meaning uh, major investors can borrow uh, at very, very low rates and turn around and use that dollar credit and put it into another currency, put it into a, a risk asset, put it into commodities, whatever they need. Um, and therefore, <clears throat> that currency that's being borrowed basically ends up being sold to create that liquidity for these other more risky investments or higher yield investments. Mm-hmm. The reason that this um, is changing isn't necessarily because of the fact that the Fed is uh, hiking interest rates or about to hike interest rates, um, but it, 
again, it's tied somewhat to this idea uh, of risk in the global economy and what's going on. We're just seeing general money flow um, back into U.S. markets Again, not because of yield, uh, but mm-hmm. because of safety. So that safe haven mm-hmm. aspect has changed the dynamics for using the U.S. dollar as a as a carry trade currency. Mm-hmm. Um, plus, I think you're going to see the European Central Bank um, cut rates um, at their next meeting and probably cut rates again after that. So the relative yield differential um, for the U.S. dollar is improving ever so slightly, but improving a bit. Um, mm-hmm. and, and actually, on the longer longer end of the curve, um, despite the fact our rates are so low, um, yeah, better off than, than some other places. Uh, you mentioned that uh, the carry trade uh, borrowing under that, you know, with borrowing cheap dollars and turning around and buying, I guess, another currency or some other investment that's riskier and providing higher returns. Uh, who's a, who's able to do that? You said large investors. Who, who would yeah, be institutional investors primarily? Yeah, we're talking about hedge funds and institutional investors, um, the same guys that are able to access this money that's sitting in the banks where your average uh, folk who's trying to buy a house isn't able to access these. Right. Um, so, we've, so we've seen a breakdown um, in terms of size to and in access to, to this credit. So that's who I was referring to. And the process in which they turn around and then liquidate the trade, meaning if the asset, i.e., if they bought stocks with this carry trade, then they have to liquidate because they have a loan on the other side. So they mm-hmm. sell their stocks and they but then they turn around and buy the dollar. And that demand mm-hmm. coming back into the dollar when mm-hmm. other assets start to fall is mm-hmm. definitely beneficial. And that's why we see that correlation mm-hmm. um, so tight: falling risk assets or the stock market and a rising dollar mm-hmm. hand in hand. So people have been borrowing the dollar real cheap, buying these riskier assets, and now when things turn around the other way, they have to sell those riskier assets and go back and buy the dollar. That's exactly right. And that's what's, that's what's happening now, or at least has happened to an extent since Lehman Brothers, I guess. Uh, that uh, That's happened you know, in, in, in different mini-cycles since Lehman Brothers, exactly. Mm-hmm. And I think that's... That's part of the reason we saw gold come off recently. Um, just think, you're a, if you're a major portfolio holder uh, in equities and your stock market breaks, um, it, pretty soon you start to get margin calls. You have to sell something where you still have profitability, and um, so I think that's why the stock market tends to lead gold when it when it breaks. People will have been turning to the gold to sell to create the liquidity to pay for the pay for the bad stuff, so to speak. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. That's why falling markets tend to pull all, all assets down, good and bad, because they mm-hmm. have to be sold to create like, you know, margin calls. All right. A lot of times you have to sell what you're able to sell, not necessarily what you want to sell. Um, U.S. Uh, another point that you make, the fifth point that you make in, in turning bullish on the dollar, that U.S. assets are very cheap and enticing. Talk to us about that. Yeah, if you consider what uh, some of these currencies have done <clears throat> since the since the bear market against the U.S. dollar, you know some of them have gone up 60, 70, 80, 90 percent in value against the U.S. dollar. So at a point in time, um, you look back at U.S. assets as an international investor, and every asset based in dollars is 90 percent cheaper than it was about seven years ago. Hmm. Uh, and so that in itself is quite enticing. Um, if if something good starts to take place uh, in the U.S. economy. Um, and so it, it, it basically is that long-term process in which a, a currency can help um, revitalize a, a country and start to draw in capital. And I think we're very close to that. 
Yeah, it's very interesting you mentioned that, Jack, because last week we had on, on this show Kathy Fedeke, uh, who, uh, who is looking into the real estate market and finds some really stellar opportunities uh, north of 10% returns in, in relatively safe places in the country. And she notes that it's mostly foreign investors that are coming in buying these assets, and she thinks that Americans that have some money should also be thinking about it. But certainly the, the dollar is, is part of the story there. Um, okay, sentiment is another, another thing that you mentioned. Um, newsletter writers, you say, still tell us that the dollar is doomed, and this is something that I see a lot, and a lot of the guests that I've had on this show who are very hard money orientated. They're Austrian, many of them Austrian school orientated. They, um, they believe that the government printing money or, or driving money into the banks are going to cause inflation. Uh, so talk to us about sentiment. Yeah, sentiment's a big one, um, especially in the currency markets. And the reason it's big in currencies is because there's so many factors that can drive the currency. Is it oil? Is it interest rates? Is it industrial production? Is it politics? Is it geopolitics? And because of that, currencies in and of themselves tend to get in these self-reinforcing trends, sentiment-driven trends that you know, a currency could for you could have a rationale that's completely wrong, but if the price goes in your direction, you believe in your rationale, and mm -hmm. that process creates a self-feeding, um, a price-led move, and we see that in currencies that overshoot and undershoot. And this is somewhat tied to to number five. I think the U.S. dollar has really um, reached a point in which it the, it's it's very low relative to the fundamentals in the U.S compared to other countries. That's not to suggest anything good is going on in the U.S. per se, mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. but as I said earlier, it's relative. So the sentiment is so bad because it, you know, we're kind of egocentric thinking, you know, boy, it's terrible. It is, but the debt, debt problem is worse in Europe. Japan is still mired in a, in a nasty situation. The U.K. is in really big trouble, and China could, could break. So, again, it's a relative, a relative game, and um, that's why I think this, this sentiment issue is very, very important in the currency world. Okay, I'd love to talk to you about China, but I want to get through this list. You've got three more, uh, three more items here uh, that uh, you, that you argue on the bullish side of the dollar. The next one is correlation with the stock market uh, and the dollar. Talk to us about that. Yeah, and this kind of ties into the self-reinforcing process um, mm -hmm. to a degree. Um, we've seen a very tight correlation actually since um, uh, 2000, 2001, just the time when when uh, Greenspan started flooding the globe with liquidity. So assets have been moving on these liquidity flows, and you've had very tight correlation, strong stock market, weak dollar, weak stock market, strong dollar. Um, and I'm very, I'm quite negative on the stock market in here. As we just talked about, I think it's in a secular bear market. So I think that in and of itself <clears throat> will lead to a, a rising dollar on that correlation flow. Um, and, it, and it will tend to be self-reinforcing for the dollar uh, the same way it's um, self-reinforcing negatively you know, when the U.S. stock market comes down and breaks that old low again. Mm -hmm. uh, okay, so another one is just the technicals. You're looking at upside momentum. It's broken. Um, it, it broke its weekly downtrend. So, what? What? So you, you're seeing here just a, a trend change based on the technicals. I, I was talking a little bit ago about a double, sort of a double bottom here since Lehman mm -hmm. Brothers. Uh, yeah. So talk to us about the technicals. Yeah, from a broader perspective, uh, you nailed it. It looks like it's basing, and the last um, last three, 
two times that we've come out of bear markets, we've seen a similar type of basing, a rally up, a, a big test down, and then it takes off. We saw that, um, you know, in, from 78 to 80, basically, mm-hmm. and we saw that from 92 to 94, big move up, big test mm-hmm. down, um, mm-hmm. and we're seeing that again here, um, a basing. And we also do Elliott Wave analysis um, mm-hmm. uh, to a large degree, and, and the wave setup um, looks looks very good to us on both a daily and a weekly basis in here. So it's a little bit of you know, pattern recognition. And if you don't even do Elliott Wave, as I said, you can just draw your natural downtrend line and, and see mm-hmm. that it's broken its weekly trend, which is very important mm-hmm. um, in and of itself. But, Jack, as I go back and look at the chart here in 1992, you had the sharp run-up in the dollar, and then you had a very sharp decline. That must have shaken a lot of people out of market, must have really convinced people that we were in a bear market in the dollar during those days in 93, well, 94, 95, I suppose. Mm-hmm. Uh, it, it's really not easy, is it? I mean, here's the issue is, I mean, if it was easy, I guess, uh, you know, everybody would be making money, and that's impossible. But, um, you know, how do we know now? I mean, I, I guess we don't. You're just looking at the odds and all these different different uh, arguments that you make here. One more here. You mentioned uh, um the euro craters as a currency. Well, we're certainly seeing the euro uh, come under tremendous pressure. In fact, what would have happened, I'm wondering, if we, if there hadn't been a concerted effort on the part of the central banks, including the Federal Reserve, uh, in the last number of days here to try to shore things up, do you think we might have seen a, a plunge in the euro and, and the thing finally come, come unglued? I think it's possible. I think part of this process may have been triggered by a a major institution in Europe about to go belly up, Mm -hmm. um, which would prove that the financial engineering that they've had on all these summits uh, has has failed miserably. So that that is part of the process, and you're right. And part of the reason they're doing this, they're continuing to try and buy time uh, for them to uh, basically get their their act together. Um, It is a pure... European banking crisis now, um, and that's that's a, a very very scary for you know, all global asset markets because the European banking system is gigantic, uh, globally much bigger than the U.S. and they provide most of the credit on a relative basis to emerging markets around the world, um, much much bigger suppliers of credit to emerging markets um, than U.S. banks. So it, it's a it's a very very um, very very nasty situation, and I think that's why you saw the coordinated effort uh, as you described. Well, so if the euro the euro craters and I and I take it that you think this is a virtual certainty sooner or later, uh, is that right? Well, you know, as we talked, um, nothing is certain. Nothing is certain. Um, but but I I do think that uh, until they do something that, that to, to change the structure, and I don't know how they they could do that given the structure, um, which we won't go into politically and economically of the eurozone. Mm-hmm. Um, I just think it has to break apart for these countries um, to get to get back on track. Um, and, and if that dissolves, um, just think of the money flow into a safe haven currency. It would it would be massive. Well, you would think so from the euro itself. But you're mentioning that the European banks are much bigger lenders to developing countries. And so, if those loans go bad, or if they have to pull money back from there, then you could see sort of a self-feeding loop here. Uh, if the if the emerging markets uh, are are heading south as well, then yes. that would mm-hmm. that that would really be devastating. I mean, this is this is sort of scary stuff. Very scary, and, and you see in a, just a mini view of that. If you look at what's happening in Hungary, Hungarian foreign has been really hammered very very hard. <clears throat> um, really, they again all 
international credit is what they're dependent on. These banks in Europe are starting to pull in their credit lines. Besides the fact that Hungary, most of their real estate, a very large portion of their real estate, up to 20% of their GDP, is through borrowings of Swiss francs. So uh, you have a, so you have the credit draining out of Hungary. You have Swiss franc exposure relative to the Hungarian forint, which is weakening tremendously. And this mm. is why the IMF, as you've noticed in the headlines, is now stepping in to help Hungary. That's a microcosm of what happens to the emerging markets and why when you see emerging markets sometimes people go well it's contagion it started here and it's hitting this country why should it it's precisely because those bank credit lines get sucked in at the same time as these banks try and save themselves so countries may be quite different but that credit comes out from the periphery to the center to try and save uh, their core banking system mm-hmm. well jack you hit it on you hit the nail on the head i think and the problem is is credit and it's not real wealth and savings and, and capital, but this fictitious money which is made out of nothing, a fractional reserve banking system that allows loans to be piled on loans upon loans upon loans. And finally, we come to a point in time, and a good friend of mine, Ian Gordon, who's does, who does some work on Kondratiev cycles and so forth, you know, believes that we get to these periods of time when the credit in the aggregate and debt becomes so onerous it cannot be repaid and the system starts to break down. That would seem to me to be what's happening now globally. I think I think you've summed it up well. Um, I've also done some work uh, in grad school on the Kondratiev cycle, hmm. um, and I do um, actually think uh, that's play, that, that's play, it's playing into this um, to a, to a oh, degree. Love to talk to you some more sometime about that. You mentioned um, when we were at break uh, a little bit about velocity. You think that velocity is really important. It's a topic that's hardly ever talked about. Talk to our listeners about velocity, velocity of money. Sure. It's a, it's kind of an indicator of the movement, uh, you know, money going into the hands of the consumer and how quickly basically does it does it come out. Um, I won't get into all the esoterics of it, but mm-hmm. it's a, it's a good relative thermometer of fear, meaning if 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 we're every everybody's happy and they have access to credit when money comes in, we tend to spend it and move it out, buy things, consumer goods, but when we get very very fearful uh going on, we tend to hoard cash. And even though you receive more and more money going into the system, um, in, a, in a normal environment, the monetary velocity should hike up because interest rates are coming down. Supposedly, people have access to credit, but the reality is um, people don't have much access to credit because they've tightened the credit lines, and people are very fearful. And as this monetary velocity falls, it effectively tells you that the the money that they're putting in the economy is less and less stimulative. It's mm-hmm. not creating any GDP growth or less GDP growth than it did uh, before. And that is falling off the cliff. And, and there's where, I th- you know, we talked about before where Bernanke, Bernanke has to be very, very nervous. Whatever he's done has not changed the trend in monetary velocity, and it, it is plunging. Um, and that's a sign of people in the real economy being very, very fearful. And it just suggests that, you know, it, it's not something that turns on a dime. It's just that, that trend may be in place based on the uh, the negative sentiment out there and the relative degree of debt that mm-hmm. most uh, consumers still have to pay down. You know, we didn't even talk about housing, but, you know, they're, most of our assets, um, unfortunately, have been tied up into our houses, and, you know, we still have that debt, but the, but the asset on a relative basis has declined tremendously, and that's creating the fear, you know, um, and why people are hoarding more and more cash, and, mm-hmm. and the monetary policy is just completely ineffective. You know, that's the thing that we watch um, very often, and um, as you said, not sure why people don't talk about it more. 
Yeah, it's. Uh, I think uh, I, I do wonder why people don't talk about it more. You know, in a way, I guess uh, Keynes talked about animal spirits, the notion that you can just talk up the economy, you can just be optimistic, and therefore, you know, why people like Jack Crooks and Jay Taylor and a host of people on this show are not allowed to be uh, very often heard on the mainstream media because they're going to hurt the animal spirits. But actually, Jack, when I look at it, I don't think it's just about animal spirits. I think it's about living beyond our means, having too much debt, not enough income to service that debt. Uh, you know, if we consume today, uh, we are going to do so at the expense of tomorrow. And, you know, I think you and I both probably agree as people who are pretty much Austrian school orientated, we, we think that uh, real wealth comes from working hard, saving, uh, and investing those savings and not creating money out of thin air and reallocating wealth according to some whims and wishes of government and crony capitalists. But uh, in any event, that's a little editorializing from, from yours <laughs> truly. Uh, Jack, uh, we do have to wrap up here, but I, I know that these, as you, as you pointed out, as we've talked about, these are seven to ten year cycles. It looks to me like you're right about this dollar thing, which is one of the reasons I wanted to have you on the show, uh, it, that, um, there are opportunities here. We've talked about all of the problems, but when there are problems, sometimes uh, there are good opportunities. You can make a great deal of money in the currency markets, and you, I believe, are focused on helping average people, people of average means, perhaps do this. Uh, is that right? That's exactly right. Mm -hmm. and, you, and you have a newsletter. What's the name of the newsletter? Uh, we actually have we, we produce I edit two newsletters for Weiss. One is called the World Currency Trader, and that's one that's you know focused toward the the average person that wants to look at you know how to play these trends intermediate mm -hmm. and long term. Um, and, and then I also have a, a newsletter there called Global Forex Alert, and that's where we trade in the spot market. It's, it's highly aggressive. It's not for your average person, uh, very mm -hmm. speculative, but potentially um, very high gains because of the mm -hmm. risks that we're taking. Mm -hmm. um, but I think your average investor using these you know these currency exchange traded funds mm -hmm. um, really if, if they believe in, in these types of longer term trends mm -hmm. um, really have a nice way to take advantage of them you can mm -hmm. buy the dollar up fund UUP or you can buy the euro down fund you know effectively shorting the euro but you're not going short you're just buying the ETF that's short sure there's a lot of ways to play this, and one of the reasons that we've, uh, I tell people this is such an interesting time is because if this dollar breaks down, as we talked about, we know we know where we're wrong. But if we're right, it has a potential to run very, very far, you know, 50, 60, 100 percent. Um, and that's a, that's, a nice, uh, that's a nice holding for something, you know, in, a, in an ETF, um, mm -hmm. you know, to play a long-term trend like that and not have to worry about margin calls and things that you can, you know, get into in futures. And, um, you know, and options are another way to play it. But the longer-term way to play it, I think, is ETF. It's a safer way uh, to go about doing it. Mm -hmm. Excellent, Jack. Well, this is really good, and I might just remind our listeners that, in fact, the people who have made money since the year 2000 primarily are people on the Austrian, uh, people that are Austrian school thinkers, not exclusively. There's a lot of other really brilliant traders who don't necessarily believe in Austrian economics, but Austrian economics has set the framework. Uh, or sets the framework for people understanding what's really going on in this economy as opposed to the propaganda that we get every day from the mainstream media. And Jack, uh, as an Austrian school thinker, would certainly be, I think, uh, headed in the right direction, generally speaking. And of course, Jack, I know you'd be the first one to say you're not infallible, but, but you've had a good track record, and uh, I appreciate your work. I've read it over the years uh, through the Weiss uh, organization, and I must say I've got a 
avail myself to uh, to your letters, how can people do that? Where can they go? Where's, what's the website? Sure, they can go to moneyandmarkets.com, and they okay. can find me there. Money and moneyandmarkets.com, and that is also the Weiss organization that would provide uh, other writers as well, I think, information that people can pick up on different topics. Your focus is primarily on currencies and the commodity markets and that sort of thing, I believe. That's correct. Right. All right. Well, folks, uh, I want to thank you, Jack, very much for coming with us. And, uh, folks, that's all the time we've got now. Uh, I've got to go to commercial break. And when I come back, uh, if my good friend Jeff Dice is with me, I'm expecting he's going to be here. Uh, he's Ron Paul's chief of staff. He'll be here to talk about it. I want to talk to uh, Jeff a little bit about the central banks uh, moving together in concert to try to bail out this uh, European problem. I'm, I'm, I know how Jeff's going to come down on that issue, but I want to hear uh, what he has to say and, uh, and what people on Capitol Hill are having to say about it. So don't go away. We'll be right back. Voice America Business Network, the bottom line in business. American Manganese Incorporated controls the largest deposit of manganese in the southwest United States, and their 43101 preliminary economic evaluation includes the potential to be the lowest cost producer of electrolytic manganese in the world. A National Instrument 43101 report of 14.9 billion pounds of indicated and 3.5 billion pounds inferred. Go to www.americanmanganeseinc.com. Ladies and gentlemen, the reality is that exploration for mineral deposits is risky business, though the rewards for shareholders can be enormous. At Millrock Resources, we don't believe in risking your investment on a treasure hunt. We believe in leveraging shareholder capital to generate projects and partnering with mining giants such as Kinross, Ballet, Inmet, and Tech to fund our exploration in the mining-friendly states of Alaska and Arizona. By utilizing this business model, Millrock Resources increases the potential of finding economic gold and copper deposits and maximizing shareholder wealth. For more information, Please visit us at www.millrockresources.com or find us on the TSX Venture under MRO. Africa is known for its world-class gold deposits. Both Namibia and Tanzania are mining-friendly countries, and Helio has been exploring for gold here for the last six years. Backed by an experienced board and committed institutional shareholders, Helio is drilling its SMP gold project in Tanzania to demonstrate the potential for a multi-million ounce resource. Helio is also in the process of outlining the resource potential at its DGP project in Namibia, which is situated next to Anglo Gold Shanti's Navatschap Gold Mine. For updates, check out helioresource.com. Merrick's Gold, with over 800 square kilometers of contiguous permits in West Mali, Africa. Merrick's and exploration partner IM Gold have spent $17 million on the advanced stage Surabaya Gold Project in Mali. 40,000 meters of diamond and reverse circulation drilling currently underway to expand Merrick's indicated resource and to determine the true size of the Surabaya Gold deposit. Exploration also continues on the huge gold anomaly at Zone Bambadinka, as well as the major gold system on the Babara and Kofia permits. Ladies and gentlemen, the reality is that exploration for mineral deposits is risky business, though the rewards for shareholders can be enormous. At Millrock Resources, we don't believe in risking your investment on a treasure hunt. We believe in leveraging shareholder capital to generate projects and partnering with mining giants such as Kinross, Ballet, Inmet, and Tech to fund our exploration in the mining-friendly states of Alaska and Arizona. By utilizing this business model, Millrock Resources increases the potential of finding economic gold and copper deposits and maximizing shareholder wealth. For more information, 
information, please visit us at www.millrockresources.com or find us on the TSX Venture under MRO. Rypatch Gold Corp. is an exploration company seeking to build a sizable inventory of gold and silver resource assets in mining-friendly Nevada, the world's fourth richest gold region. This well-funded company now has 1.2 million ounces of gold and gold equivalent in the measured and indicated category, plus 2.7 million ounces of gold and gold equivalent in the inferred category, with ongoing drilling to achieve a goal of 10 million ounces of gold. For more info on RPM, please visit our website at www.rypatchgold.com Welcome to the human race Some kind of love and ride I'll be sliding down I'll be gliding down Try not to try too hard It's just a love ride You're listening to Turning Hard Times into Good Times with your host, Jay Taylor. If you have a question or comment about today's show, Jay would love to hear from you at 1-866-472-5790. That's 1-866-472-5790. You can also send an email to questionsfortaylor at gmail.com. That's questions, the number four, taylor at gmail.com. Now, back to our program. Welcome back to Turning Hard Times into Good Times. I am your host, Jay Taylor. Unfortunately, Jeff Dice could not be with us today, but I do expect to have him very soon on the show, perhaps as early as next week. We are definitely living in interesting times, but I would also say very perilous times, with our government essentially throwing away the values of our founding fathers. The bill being passed through the Senate that would allow torturing of Americans and seizure of Americans off our streets or anywhere in the world without any court order is alarming and smacks very much of the same kinds of things that were going on in Nazi Germany before, well, before Hitler came to power. If there is one candidate in either party who stands up against not only crimes of theft against the American people by our government and its fascist partner, the Federal Reserve, it would be Ron Paul. How any freedom-loving person could vote for anyone else is beyond me. Next week, my main guest will be Peter Grandich, who will talk about a new book he has written about his life titled Confessions of a Wall Street Whiz Kid. Peter has some very interesting things to say about the markets and also about his Christian faith that I think may be very well worth paying attention to. Well, that's all the time we have for this week. In closing, I want to thank my senior executive producer, Tacey Trump, and Justin Jackman, my engineer, for making this show logistically possible. And I want to thank each of you for listening to the show, making it the number one show on the Voice America Business Channel. Until next week, goodbye and God's blessings to you. Thank you again for listening to Turning Hard Times into Good Times with Jay Taylor. Please join us again next Tuesday at noon Pacific Time, 3 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Business Channel. Now the thing about time is that time is 